Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking with Stuart Goldstein about his book, Mo Fields. It's an amazing tribute to a father's fighting spirit and determination to save his family and inspire his sons to succeed. Before we get started, let's get the inside scoop on Stuart Goldstein. Stuart Goldstein was one of the longest-serving PR spokespersons on Wall Street as Managing Director of Corporate Communications and Public Affairs for the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation in New York, the largest trade clearinghouse and central securities depository in the world. Prior to this, he was a spokesperson for American Express and led National Public Affairs at Citicorp. Earlier, he served as a state ombudsman in New Jersey and as Legislative Affairs Director for the New Jersey Public Advocate. Mr. Goldstein has co-authored two books in plain English explaining the inner workings of U.S. capital markets. He has published numerous articles in PR trade magazines and was a contributing author to public affairs in an era of change. His bylined articles on public policy issues have appeared in USA Today, The Washington Times, The Star-Ledger, Trenton Times, Global Financial Markets Magazine, and many trade journals. He graduated from the College of New Jersey with a B.A. in English and earned his Master's in American Government from Rutgers University. During college, he wrote for the Trenton Times newspaper and helped lead the effort in New Jersey to lower the voting age to 18 and ratify the 26th Amendment. He lectures on crisis communications and media relations. He's also served on the Graduate School Advisory Board in Corporate Communications at Fairleigh Dickinson University and was a founding member of the Corporate Communications Institute at Baruch College. Connect with Stuart Goldstein and learn more about him and his work on Facebook and LinkedIn. Well, hi, Stuart. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you. Happy to be here. I read your book. I loved it. I'm looking forward to talking about Mo Fields with you. So to get started, why don't you give us a little background on the story? What is Mo Fields about? Mo Fields is really a story about my father, and it cuts across five decades of his life and our life as a family. He was a unique, kind of larger-than-life individual, in my eyes at least. And the story starts back in the Depression when he was about 15 years old. Mm. And you know, it deals with how he grew up and the struggles that people had during the Depression. And you know, he essentially became a boxer in maybe his 16, 17 years old and fought in the Golden Gloves and then became a, what they called a bootleg boxer, which in those days in Brooklyn, uh, there was a, a boxing ring at the back of a bar, and guys would come, either semi-professionals or professionals who were beyond their prime, and they would box, and they would be betting, and the, the boxers would get a piece of the purse, and it was a way to earn money to help support their families. Yeah. So the story goes on through World War II, and then after the war, you know, trying to build a business. My dad was a plumber. So it's a story about a guy who works with his hands. Mm. And uh, essentially, the book has three parts. The beginning part is setting the stage about my dad as a fighter. Uh, the middle of the book is really about how he comes back from the war and 
uh, starts a business and starts a family and deals with a certain amount of anti-Semitism that existed in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the third part of the book, which was also a, a motivation for me, was, you know, what is the father? And so the third part of the book is really about the three sons and how they grow up, uh, having dealt with family trauma and crisis and how they uh, internalize and take that and become fathers themselves and also become successful in their own careers. So it, it really has three parts to, to the story. Yeah, there's just so much wrapped into this book. What inspired you to actually sit down and write the story? You know, I had a career as a uh, corporate spokesperson in financial services. Uh, I served three uh, different CEOs on Wall Street at the same company mm-hmm. uh, over the course of my career. So writing uh, was part of what I did, mm. um, ghostwriting for CEO. But I never had the idea in my head that I could write a book. And I have written many op-ed articles in newspapers because I started my career working in public policy and government politics, running political campaigns. So, but again, the idea of writing a book, my, my dad passed away in 1976. So you can see how many years it's been before I wrote this. Mm. Um, the thing that motivated me was 1987. I wrote a bylined article in Trenton Times about my father on his birthday. And people were calling my home for, I would say, three or four weeks in response to the article. I mean, it's just such an emotional connection that they seem to have. Wow. I, you know, I wrote it as kind of a cathartic thing for me. I mm-hmm. didn't expect other folks to necessarily feel the same way or have their own experiences with their own fathers. But in the back of my head, in 1987, I said, you know, this could be a book, and the article could be an outline for the story. Mm. And I said, maybe someday... You know, my job was 24-7. I was at the you know, call of the CEO when they needed me. So I didn't really have the time career-wise to spend writing the book. Right. But I said, maybe at some point I'll get a break uh, or I'll retire. And, you know, then I can I, I have everything sort of set in motion. And that's really what happened is when I stepped down in 2011, my firm, I started, you know, I actually started before and my children remind me you know, that they used to see me on the train writing, handwriting in notebooks, mm. um, you know, back in the early 2000 period. But the serious writing, I think, really started in 2011 and coming forward uh, as I had time to, to try and write the story and go back and rewrite the story, which is what writers do. Absolutely. So it's been a long time in the making then, yeah. What? Yeah, it, and I think, you know, it's a story, obviously, uh, if I wrote a fiction book, uh, which maybe I'll do next, but... Uh, because I never thought of writing books. This was uh, something sort of new uh, for me as a challenge. But uh, this book, because it involved families, I mean, it took me perhaps two months to write certain sections of the book uh, where I could get emotional about and remembering some of the things that happened to the family. Yeah. Um, But that's just part of the process. Right, right. Now, Mo Fields was your father's fight name. Can you tell us a bit about the man behind the fighter? Yeah, the use of uh, Mo Fields was an alias. And, you know, my dad had at 15, he used to hop freight trains from Brooklyn to uh, Philadelphia. And his parents, unfortunately, split up when he was a teenager. And it was in the middle of the Depression. 
there was very little money at home. And so he hopped the train and went to Philadelphia and joined the circus. He actually went to get a job mm. and he was rigging up the tents. He wasn't a performer of any sort, but it was a way for him to escape the troubles at home and, and the sense of poverty that existed during the Depression. Yeah. And so he was gone for about a year, year and a half. And when he came back, uh, he decided to start boxing. And a lot of folks don't realize that in the 1920s uh, to the 1930s was what was called the golden age of Jewish fighters. Mm -hmm. Like any immigrant group, when Jewish folks couldn't get into education, you know, they were involved in sports. You know, so they controlled every weight class in boxing in the mid-20s to the uh, early 30s. And my dad was inspired by that, and so he became a fighter. But the other interesting thing about his, him as a person is that he knew that if he went under his own name, his father might find out. And he knew his father uh, would not approve of him fighting. Mm. And so rather than confront or disappoint his father, he chose to use an alias. And this started when he went into the Golden Gloves. In the book, it's Murray Goldman, but in the real world, it's Murray Goldstein. Mm -hmm. And he chose the name Mo Fields in order to preserve the relationship he had with his father. And that said something to me about his character and about what was important to him. You know, his love for his own father and his respect for his own father, even though the parents split up, was always one of the drivers for him. So I think that the circumstance... You know, we're talking about a different generation than what we know today. You know, the Depression hardened people in a way that today we don't really understand. We think we're swamped with problems and things are really difficult. But in that period when you had people who literally didn't have food to eat, didn't have clothes to wear, these are things that hardened and started in childhood. Mm -hmm. It grew up in poverty. And so... That has a way of shaping you, and I think it's part of where his determination came from. Yeah. You mentioned the reason for using an alias was to protect his relationship with his father. Do you know, did his father ever find out that he fought for a time? You know, it's a good question. You know, there are obviously holes in the story. My parents' generation, they were taught never to ask their parents questions. Mm. In my generation... You sort of grew up, and it just didn't seem timely. It was like, well, I can ask him later on. Mm -hmm. uh, or you did ask some questions, but you didn't think to all the questions. And before you know it, uh, they're older and, or they're gone, and you don't get that opportunity. It's one of the things I talk with my own uh, children about, grown children, that, you know, your parents right now are healthy and they're around. What do you want to know? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what would you like to know about? when we were growing up, you know, we're, we're here and happy to share uh, information with you. So I think each generation handles these things differently, but I honestly don't know what his father didn't find out. I do know that as a young boy, I went with my father to the cemetery uh, with his father to visit, you know, his mother's grave. Mm -hmm. And I remember my father getting out of the car and hugging and kissing my grandfather and it's a story that I share with my children because he was never ashamed or felt like he couldn't kiss his father and openly express his love for his father. And I thought that was important because you know, my own children, at one point, you know, you get to a certain point, it 
10 years old and the hugging stuff starts to go away. You get a little embarrassed because the friends are around. And I wanted him to know that even, you know, my grandfather was 86 years old. My father wasn't ashamed of kissing and hugging his father. And I think those are important lessons for children to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember my grandmother was a wonderful storyteller. She told us stories about the family, but I didn't know to ask more at the time. And looking back now, it's like, oh, I wish I had just one day with her to hear all her stories about my family. So very touching. Part of the journey, if I can call it that, that you're on is, you know, there are tidbits of the stories that, you know, my mom shared uh, over the years. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, pieces of the story where you go off and do independent research uh, to sort of substantiate. And then there are uh, just circumstances that occur during the course of your research. I, I actually found somebody who was on the Navy ship with my father. Oh, wow. This was in 2012. The fellow was still alive. He was 88 years old. Wow. And his son and I connected through the internet. Uh, the Navy has websites where They'll list a ship, and you'll have all the names of the sailors. And sometimes the children try to connect. And I found this fellow, and uh, I interviewed him probably for 10 hours. And his son and I still stay in contact. But many of the stories, the Navy stories, came from uh, those interviews. There was a couple of the stories, you know, building the bathroom on the ship for Roosevelt. You know, I had heard as a child, and I thought it was a bogus story. <laughs> but uh, but it wasn't. I didn't know that uh, Roosevelt actually stayed on the ship for yeah. one night after the Alta conference. And so it was corroboration of the facts. And so it helped me in terms of filling in some of the story. Yeah, yeah. I love that story, too. I wanted to share a comment uh, by our reviewer who read your book just a month or so ago, uh, Mo Fields is that ultimate role model we rely and depend on. In a way, he becomes a legendary figure with a heart so big and a mind so wise that it's almost difficult to believe in his existence at all. And I felt that as well when I was reading the story and got the same impression. I felt like he was larger than life. And what do you attribute to his drive and, and just overall outlook on life? I started the story and... Some folks aren't used to like a story about a fighter. So you know, mm. the opening chapter is a, a boxing a match. Uh, but I really felt that the boxing was a, a metaphor for how he approached life. You know, my dad used to tell us that you know, in the ring, uh, everybody gets knocked down. Uh, and that is what you do afterwards that really defines your character. You know, do you get back up? Do you fight back? Do you give in? You know, so I think that the boxing, and I think there's something about fighters that I've always been fascinated about because you, you wonder about they're in the middle of a ring and they're getting beat. I mean, if, you know, as a guy, you know, you, you play sports, you suffer either getting hit in a football game or as a wrestler getting tossed around the room, mm-hmm. you know, so you get hurt. And what is it that you do at that point? So the boxing is a metaphor is really about being able to do whatever is necessary, absorb whatever punishment uh, occurs in order to still overcome and triumph uh, and win. And I think that that's where the larger than life 
quality of my dad comes through for me is, mm. you know, it's the image of the fighter. And there's also other things that tie into that. You know, you know, my dad used to say in the ring, there is no such thing as color. There is no such thing as the other person's race or religion or ethnicity. You're just two guys out there. And the only thing that uh, is making a difference is who has more heart. Mm. And so there's aspects of a fighter that transcend a lot of the day-to-day sense of bias and, and sense of prejudice. And, you know, fighters don't walk around with those things. Fighters are only focused on can they prevail? Mm-hmm. And do they have the skill and the heart to absorb whatever the other person's dishing out and still prevail? And out of that conflict comes a certain degree of respect. You know, there's a story in the book. My dad fights in the Golden Gloves against a, a black fighter. And out of that, they become uh, best friends mm. because there's a, a respect that grows from both having faced the same kind of punishment and, and challenge in the ring. And it doesn't matter who wins or loses at a certain point, that beyond the, the, the fight is a sense of respect that grows between the people. So I, I think that you know, it really transcends just the idea of boxing, but the fighter image is what really is, gives him the larger-than-life quality. Yeah, yeah. To me, there are two heroes in this story, and I think your mother and father just, they sounded so perfectly matched, and I could f- actually feel the bond, the strength that, that was their marriage and their life together. So I know the book is about Mo Fields, but can you tell us a little bit about Franny? The story and the, and the focus of the book starts with you know, my father, and, and the reason for that is you know, I wanted to have something that looked at what is the role of a father mm. and how they influence their sons. And it's not to suggest that there's less influence of the mother. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, so each one provides a different kind of a level of inspiration and a level of challenge. In the book, I describe my mom as the North Star for the boys. And you know, my wife will joke that my mother, the way she uh, required us to dress appropriately and always be well manicured and her lessons about first impressions being lasting impressions in your life and your career, uh, those things really shaped us. Mm. Uh, you know, all of us are, uh, are clothes hounds. We, we all like to buy uh, new clothes all the time. <laughs> but and we get that from my mother. But she was a person who was, uh, also grew up in the same building as my father, and during the same time in the Depression. And she was ahead of her time as a woman. This is the 1930s, and she's 16 years old, 17 years old, and she would go off and tour with a Benny Goodman-style all-women's band. Mm-hmm. So she was a musician and quite an accomplished one, a Saxon clarinet, and she was an athlete in her own right. I mean, in those days... There weren't a lot of women's sports, but my mom was a handball court champion and was proud of that. So she was an amazing person on her own. And, you know, in the book, I described them as a Depression-era love story. There's a scene in the book where she challenges my dad to a handball match, and they actually compete against each other. And I think my father just so respected and admired her 
tenacity. And I think the thing that uh, brought them together is that they both shared a dream. And my brothers and I are the embodiment of that dream, is mm. that they would persevere, they would overcome the Depression era, they would grow a family, and they would live to see the first generation going to college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these days, we don't uh, think of that as being such a, a big deal, but in that period, you know, they had started out with nothing, and the idea that their children would go off to college, you know, we weren't going to Harvard. Both my parents worked, they both had jobs, and they both contributed, and they both tried to raise kids. So she was, uh, she played that saxophone until she was 85 years old. Wow. And she played the instrument as, as when she played it at 16 or 17. She had this uh, skill and talent, and she never thought of herself as less than my dad. They were equals in a sense. Mm-hmm. And when they each needed each other at the most critical points in their lives where there was trauma, it was both their competitive sides that helped the other one to persevere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's quite an individual in their own right. I think the difficulty for us as uh, children uh, was to see, you know, some of the trauma that they faced later in life when, you know, the drunk driver uh, crashed into my parents on the way to a conference in Atlantic City and my mother as a result was crippled. And, you know, that whole part of the book where, you know, she suffered enormously from that accident and the doctors didn't think she'd ever walk again. But... That was not my mother. My mother, like my dad, you know, she wasn't a boxer, but she wasn't a quitter. And she persevered through enormous pain and learned to use crutches so that she could walk. Right. Yeah. That part of the story, the the accident that kind of changed everyone's lives forever. You, you were a young boy. You and your brothers were very young at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? This was a pivotal turning point for our family because, you know, my dad had from nothing built a, and despite the fact that he had some health issues, he built this enormously large plumbing business, one of the largest plumbing businesses in New Jersey. He was very well known. And then they had the car accident and everything was lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business, my dad suffered a little bit from the accident and couldn't work for a period of time. And then you know, his focus was on my mother. I mean, he cared more that my mother was able to recover and walk again than he cared about his business. Mm-hmm. And he looked at that as being, you know, secondary to her. And for us as children, probably the toughest part of the story for me writing was, you know, I was 10 years old at the time. And we were in our house for two and a half months by ourselves, the three of us, yeah. uh, three sons. You know, and no, none of the relatives who some lived in the next town, none of them came and checked on us. None of them helped us. And so that was really difficult. You know, we didn't know at the time whether our parents were going to come home from Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived in Paranas. We didn't know if the parents were going to survive. My mother was going, had probably 12 surgeries. You know, we, we just didn't have any idea and we didn't have any source of information. We didn't hear a lot. Uh, so we didn't know what was going on then. And then my mom finally came home, and she was in a body cast from her chest to her toes uh, with just the parts cut out where, you know, either I or my brother uh, would bring a bedpan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're a 10-year-old kid. 
sinned and you're wiping your mother's uh, you know, clean, uh, you know, after she's gone to the bathroom, you know, and it wasn't like something that you thought about, you know, do you want to do it? You don't want to do it. it. It was just a sense of this is the cards that were dealt. And so mm-hmm. any of the sports, the extracurricular activities that we engaged in as kids, you know, I, I did a lot of uh, acrobatics. I was a gymnast and I was taking tap dancing lessons at the time. But all that stopped. Our lives basically became one of, you know, the three sons being caretakers for uh, my mom. And none of us objected to that. We saw it as that was our responsibility. And I think the, the uh, you know, latter part of the book where I talk about what is the role of a father, you know, my dad you know, taught us a certain tenacity. You know, my mom taught us, you know, to persevere and, and to overcome Mm. And the combination of those things were the drivers for us to be successful in our own professional careers. Mm-hmm. So you were 10, then you had an older brother and a younger been, brother, right? Yes. My older brother, he was 13, he had just been bar mitzvahed. My mother was 44, and the accident happened three months after he was bar mitzvahed, and it was the last time my mother ever danced. Wow. So that that's kind of daunting in some ways, but... In all things in life, there are setbacks. And, you know, my dad's lessons were always about, again, we go back to the boxing analogy, is you can't just give up. You need to stick with it and get back in the game. And so you persevere. And I think those things in our later lives, you know, in our careers, you know, the idea of taking on responsibility and leading in our profession came naturally to us, you know, mm-hmm. the accepting responsibility because we had had it at such a young age just became part of who we were. You know, my brothers and I, my older brother was a very successful lawyer, a trial lawyer, a federal prosecutor. You know, my younger brother was very successful in his career uh, working in government. But these are the things that you look back and you say, where did that come from? Mm. Uh, I attribute it to, uh, you know, my parents and how they... Uh, overcame difficulties that they faced. The middle part of the book is about some of the family trauma, and the last part of the book is about the family triumph, because Mm -hmm. the idea that all of us overcame and all of us were successful and all of us became fathers, and what is it that we learned from our own experience that we can now pass on to our children and help them become good people, uh, I think that's really the essence of the story. Everybody has their Mo Fields. I didn't write this book exclusively for me. Mm-hmm. It is about me and my family, but it's really about other people who have fathers. And, you know, in the book, I talk about that in the last couple of chapters. You know, I say, you know, what is a father? And if you didn't have a father, you know, you might invent one because we use that as the person who sets the bar of expectations mm-hmm. for how we lead our lives. And that's really part of the message of the book. It should be life-affirming. There's a section where I talk about, you know, I have two brothers, and we all see our father from our own perspective. Mm -hmm. So the way I see my father and the way I wrote about him might be somewhat different than the way my brothers might write about him if they chose to do that. We all want to ascribe qualities to our father that we want him to have, and usually those are qualities we want to find in ourselves. Mm. So if I see my father as 
tenacious and the, the fighter. Uh, you know, my brothers may see him slightly differently, but it's because we're looking to fill gaps in our own sense of who inspires us and who leads us, who, who encourages us. And so the role of a father, whether you have one or you don't, is still a, a significant role in how people grow. You know, I was really sensitive as I was writing this to the idea that there are folks out there and children out there who don't have fathers. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of a Mo Fields is not just that I own him, but that other folks who in their college years can read a book about somebody and say, you know, if I had a dad, this is the kind of person I would want. This yeah. is the kind of person who would inspire me. So this writing you know, that you do that's really geared at different levels of not just telling a story, but what do you want to come out of it? And mm -hmm. I, I'm hoping that something comes out of this that, you know, inspires others. And so far, you know, that's been the, the reaction to the book is people identifying with the character. Yeah, I was wondering what the general response has been. Yeah, there's been some very positive book reviews. And there's also been a lot of very positive comments on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I, I think that you know, people talk about, you know, the book made them laugh and they made them cry. Mm -hmm. and uh, But they came away identifying with their own lives and their own parents. And, uh, you know, again, that's the whole uh, reason for writing the book. It wasn't just to transcribe and write about my own life, but to try and write something that others can relate to. I, I think we've been going through this period with, you know, COVID where, you know, people feel a little bit, disconnected. They feel a little bit lost. They, mm -hmm. People have lost loved ones. Uh, they've seen loved ones go through crisis. And, uh, you know, I think we're really in need of stories that restore faith, you know, our own faith, and restore a sense of uh, being a family. In our country, so many people feel disconnected to each other, but really we're one family. We, we have a lot of shared values. Mm -hmm. and, and the last part of it is you know, the idea of, of legacy is what are we leaving our children? You know, are, are we leaving our children in a world where we all feel a sense of responsibility for one another? I'll jump back to my mom, who uh, we weren't so religious. Uh, we were more secular as a family, but mm -hmm. the golden rule. My mother made us sit and she would talk about the golden rule. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. And, you know, as an older uh, fellow now, you know, I look at the world around me and I say, boy, if only we could get back to that. Yeah. If yeah. only we could embrace that, how much better things would be in the world, at least our world. So, you know, I'm hoping that the book has a ripple effect and contributes yeah. in, in some small way to restoring some of our life-affirming sense and positive view of where the country is headed, where people are headed. You know, the COVID stuff is a setback, but it doesn't define us. It shouldn't define us. Mm -hmm. We should be bigger than that. Mm -hmm. It was very inspirational to me. And I think it's just one of those stories that, like you said, it made people laugh. It made them cry. It gave me goosebumps. I feel like it's just a story everyone needs right now. I think, you know, the challenge today as a first-time author is twofold. On the one hand, 
you applaud the idea that technology has democratized the publishing environment so that more people can write and publish books. You know, if I had to go through a literary agent and then through one of the big publishers, you know, I might be looking at a decade before a book came out. Right, right. And, and so, so the fact that the technology is there and you have a number of small indie publishers who've come up and, you know, it's not as costly for them to manage the publication of a book, the only downside, and this is, you know, is good and bad and everything, the downside is that they don't have large ad budgets or marketing budgets. Right. So if I, if I was a celebrity, you know, I'd have a million-dollar ad budget, and everybody would know about Mo Fields. So technology has created an opportunity for more authors and more books, but then the question is how do you distinguish and differentiate your book from so many that are out there? And that's a huge challenge today. So yeah. the book has been doing well, and it's uh, been you know, on Amazon's bestseller list for memoirs, but it's not mainstream yet. Mainstream mm-hmm. requires something u- unique to happen to the book. Either a celebrity reads the book, or a TV host or a radio host reads the book, and then they mention it. Uh, that would raise the visibility of the book beyond where it currently is. I honestly don't know how that will go. Time will tell. It, we're only 10 weeks out from when it was published. Right. It's a challenging environment to write something, especially, you know, on the one hand, anyone who's read it raves about it. On the other hand, how do I get more people to read it? Right. So it's, it's kind of a catch-22 right now that I'm trying to navigate. And it's not like I have a large group of folks. I have a couple of close friends who've been helping. But it's the challenge of being an author in today's publishing environment that, and I talk with other authors about this. Mm-hmm. It's just unique to where we are in terms of publishing today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a year ago, we had five major publishers, and now we're down to four because mm-hmm. they keep getting pulled up. So the environment has changed significantly. And uh, if you don't have large uh, ad budgets, you need some you know, person who has some clout to talk about the book publicly, uh, and you hope that that will get you some visibility. I mean... You know, I've been very fortunate. Uh, several folks who are senior executives at major PR firms and uh, a global branding firm, they've been very outspoken on social media about the book. Mm-hmm. But there's still a, a challenge there to, to get the book mainstreamed. And, you know, we, we'll just have to see. So who would you love to have read your book and promote it, like celebrity-wise? Uh, there are folks out there who, you know, have enjoyed uh, the kind of relationship with their own father mm-hmm. who would probably love this book. You know, Ron Howard, who's a you know child yeah. actor but a producer, he had a very close relationship with his father, and I think he's written his own book uh, about his dad with his brother, but he would love this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Rob Reiner, who had a very close bond with his father. I just saw an interview with Jeff Daniels on CBS maybe two weeks ago, and, you know, he talked about his dad. So, uh, these folks who have had that kind of bond uh, would, I think, enjoy and love my book. And uh, the one person who's written publicly it, uh, is a global branding expert, and she uh, wrote in her comments about the book that 
she carries the book around with her in her purse. She's done reading the book, oh. but she still carries the book around because it reminds her of how, you know, she, she's taking the positive things out of the book about life affirming, about legacy. Yeah. And, and so she wants to keep the book close by because it makes her feel good about what's going on in the world. And I'm thrilled with that. Absolutely. But, so what an some, amazing story. Yeah. And there are other folks, you know, uh, I sent a copy of the book uh, to uh, Willie Geist, who works on Morning Joe, um, MSNBC, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I know he has uh, a dad he's very close to, who's also a very well-known correspondent. So I thought he might enjoy reading the book. These are folks who I think would get more out of the story. So mm-hmm. but getting to folks today is, you know, these are not easy things to do. Everybody wants a certain degree of privacy, and in truth, they're entitled to it. But you'd look for some of those folks who uh, have access to the book and then be drawn to the book. Yeah. One review wrote that they thought that the book was so visual in the way it was written that they thought it was destined for being a, either a movie or, or a TV series. I, you know, I didn't start with those ambitions. If it were to happen, I'd be tickled by it. But the reviewer was talking about this idea of Mo Fields being larger than life and mm-hmm. that it would be well suited to a series uh, where you can tell the story over the five decades that the story runs. Oh, you know, yeah. That'd be great. I agree with that reviewer 100%. I could totally visualize all of the lives that you talked about in the stories, all of the events. Um, and I, and then when you mentioned Ron Howard and Rob Reiner and Jeff Daniels, I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, it would be a great either miniseries or movie. What a great story. It, it would be fabulous. So have you contacted Ron Howard well, yet? <laughs> well, you know, I, I've just done some modest things. When I worked professionally and I was writing for a CEO, the folks I worked with used to always say, oh, you're such a writer. And I used to joke with them. I'd say, I'm not a writer. Mm. Ernest Hemingway writer. I know Ernest Hemingway. You know, I, I don't put myself in any of that category, but I do hope that this book has a way of identifying uh, on a personal level, on a story level, that uh, people will forgive whatever writing mistakes I've made and will enjoy the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier something about maybe you'll write fiction next. So I wanted to ask, will you be writing more books? It's a, a new ambition. I wasn't certain I could finish this book. And, uh, you know, the last two years, I've worked very diligently and, you know, gave up lots of weekends. You know, there's no place to go during COVID, but, mm-hmm. but I was you know, just determined to stay away from reading the newspaper or watching TV and, uh, you know, whatever distractions there might be and, and just focus on trying to finish the book. And I finished the book last August and then I uh, actually did two substantial edits. Mm-hmm. in September and then in December. And the book was published, uh, I think, in June. Um, so I really went through it. I added two chapters in the book in December mm. um, about you know uh, my current life and my wife and my in-laws. And you know, my wife uh, was born in Israel. Her parents were Holocaust survivors. You know, yeah. some, a friend who's been working with me as an editor suggested that that part of the story could be uh, expanded a little bit so readers would appreciate 
you know, what I've tried to do with my own children, it's just like my dad had Franny. You know, I have a wife who's been my partner and played a significant role in, in our children. So I've addressed that and uh, you know, I'm really happy I did that because it, it fills out the story. Yeah, I was finding, like, I wanted to learn more about your story at the end of the book. I didn't realize you added that chapter at the time, of course, but yeah, at the end, it kind of left me feeling, well, I want to hear about his story too, you know. Well, one of the challenges I wrestled with is at what point do I end the book and Mm -hmm. how do I end the book? And so the story ends when the brothers are all in their mid-30s, mid to late 30s, you know, which is now a a few decades uh, ago. The book was already 380 pages. You know, I wasn't looking to write a book like Michener or Conrad, you know, which went on for a thousand pages. Right. Um, so I, I, I even thought 380 uh, might be, you know, some folks might not read it just because of the length. So, uh, you know, I, I worried about that. So yeah. I, I made the decision and it did. And the last chapter of the book involves circling back full circle to the article I wrote in 1987. Mm. So you may not have realized that at the time you were reading it, but I decided to end the book where I was first inspired to write about my father, which is my son, as a young child, uh, asking me about my dad. Yeah. Oh. That's the true part. So I thought that was a fitting place and a way to to end the story. Yeah. Well, I do hope we hear more from you. You have a wonderful storytelling gift, and, and I hope you continue to share it. I was wondering how your family supports your writing. Were they surprised when you told them you were writing a book, or did you keep it a secret until it was finished? I have an older brother and younger brother who are discussed in the book. I did change all the names in the book, in part to respect their privacy, because you know I, I don't own the truth you know, in terms of telling a story about my parents. I'm telling a perspective that I grew up with, about my folks, and each of my brothers may have a slightly different perspective based on their own life experience and how they viewed what was going on. So, because, you know, they, they might have written the, the book differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't tell them that I was writing the book because I wasn't certain, again, if I was ever going to finish it. But as I got closer to the end, I did start to signal to them that I had been working on something about our parents and that, you know, that I hope to finish it. But I wasn't going to preview the book with them, in part because we each have very strong personalities as a result of having gone through what we've gone through. And I didn't want to get into a debate about it. Uh, You know, I I would joke with them at the end, you know, if, if you don't agree with the way I wrote this part of the story, you write your own book. Right. We've joked about that a little bit. But, you know, they've expressed that they're proud that I accomplished this and I finished the book. And I think both of them, uh, even though they may quibble with some details uh, from their own perspective, Mm -hmm. I think they both feel that this is a telling of a story about our dad that would not have been passed generation to generation had I not written the book. So I think overall, in the final analysis, I think that they're happy with it. Good. You always wonder, you stated it perfectly, if you want to tell your perspective, write your own book. Yeah. And how about your wife? How does she support your writing? You know, I'll often say that the first person I asked to read something I've written has always been, you know, my partner in life. 
mm. uh, because I respect and value her opinion. And I did ask her to read the book. And, you know, she's also someone who's not afraid to uh, honestly tell me, I'm not sure that this is clear or I'm not sure that you expressed this the way you intended to. Mm. And, you know, that's meaningful to me. So she's been a partner. I haven't burdened her with editing the whole book. I have a couple other friends who are professional writers who contributed. Mm-hmm. The wife has been a, a strong supporter of the book, and certainly I value that and appreciate it. And I think she liked the new chapters that I wrote about it. Well, yeah, that's good stuff. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing a little bit more about you and your work. Well, thank you for having me, and and I appreciate the interview and the coverage for the book. Uh, I hope your listeners and and readers will tell their friends and and encourage people to give it a read. Um, I think that uh, the book will carry itself if indeed they do that. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Stuart Goldstein, author of Mo Fields. To connect and learn more about Stuart and his work, visit him on Facebook and LinkedIn. And be sure to check out our other interviews on InsideScoopLive.com. <music>